Welcome to Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay. No city in North America, perhaps in the industrialized world, has been so devastated by drugs and perhaps more so by the war on drugs than Baltimore, where we are right now. Anywhere from 200 to 300 murders most years, families destroyed. Perhaps one to two people out of every four in Baltimore have some interaction with the justice system and usually something to do with supposedly war on drugs. Now joining us is a man who's tried to understand where the war on drugs began. And in the studio joining us is Johan Hari. He just published a book he's been working on for the past three years called Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. He also worked with comedian Russell Brand on the Trues YouTube news channel. Johan was also a columnist for the Independent in London for nine years. He's written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Nation, and thanks very much for joining us. Great to be with you. I was just thinking as you said that, at the birth of the war on drugs, the man who pioneers the drug war says there is one city that proves if you are really tough, if you really crack down, if you really send a lot of people to prison, drugs will disappear. That city was Baltimore. How's it working out for you? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's working out really well. Um, so we'll catch up again to what's been going on in Baltimore. Uh, most people trace the war on drugs to uh, Richard Nixon in the 1970s, but in your book, you trace this back much earlier. So, so where does this begin? Yeah, this is a really popular misconception. About four years ago when I started working on the book, I realized we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned. And I had a quite personal reason to want to look into all of this because um, we had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories was of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I saw this date that, oh, 100 years ago, drugs were banned. Does that mean the drug war began then? I didn't really know. I realized there was an incredibly broad range of questions that I just didn't know the answer to, even though I thought I was relatively well informed. You know, why were drugs banned? Why do we continue with this drug war, even though it appears to not be working? Um, what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And, um, and what are the alternatives? So I ended up going on this journey. I didn't expect it would take quite, you know, take me across 30,000 miles in nine countries at the time. But I really wanted to, you know, I think part of the problem is we discuss this in such an abstract way. It's harder to do in Baltimore, which is one of the reasons why you have a more sophisticated debate here. But most places, they talk about the dr drugs and how we should respond to them as if it were kind of sitting in a philosophical seminar thinking about how the world should be. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sit with real people all over the world and tell the stories of how they were changed by it. So I ended up spending a lot of time with, you know, a really broad range of people from a, a transsexual crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to a a cop in Baltimore who, who learned why the drug war is such a disaster to the only country in the world that's ever decriminalized all drugs from cannabis to crack with incredible results. And what I, the main thing I learned is almost everything we think we know about this subject is wrong. Drugs aren't what we think they are. Drug addiction isn't what we think it is. The drug war isn't what we think it is. And the alternatives aren't what we think they are. And it really begins 100 years ago with the passing of the Harrison Narcotics Act, which is the first decision to ban drugs in the United States. And really the way- What I, year is it? 1914. Two global wars begin in 1914. One lasts four years and one hasn't ended yet. And the, way I the best way, to, I think, to explain the dynamics that lead to that ban is through a story I opened the book with. And it may seem like an odd place to go, although it's a Baltimore home girl. Um, 1939, Billie Holiday stands on stage 
she sings the song Strange Fruit, which a lot of your viewers will know is a song about lynching. Her goddaughter, Lorraine Feather, said to me, you've got to understand how shocking this is to have an African-American woman who wasn't allowed to walk through the front door of the hotel, she had to go through the back entrance, standing in front of a white audience singing a lament against lynching. And that night, according to her biographer, Julia Blackburn, she gets a, a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics to stop singing the song. It's a really key moment in the drug war. Billie Holiday had grown up here in Pigtown, as it was called, one of the parts of Baltimore, when this was the only city without even a sewage system. And Billie Holiday had promised herself something. She wasn't allowed in loads of the stores because she was African-American. She promised herself she was never going to bow her head to any white man. So when she gets this threat from Harry Anslinger, the head of the Ferry Bureau of Narcotics, the founder of the modern drug war, she effectively says, screw you, I could do what I want. And that's the moment when this process of stalking her that leads to her death begins. It's a really fascinating story. I learned it from the archival research and from talking to her surviving friends. Harry Anslinger, the, the man who begins this stalking of her, took over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So he's got this huge department, it's really demoralized, it's really corrupt and it's got nothing to do. And he wants to keep himself and his men in a job. So he just suddenly, you know, he announces that cannabis is this great evil, even though he'd said it was fine before. And he really begins, so he takes the ban that had begun in 1914 and massively steps it up. He turns it into a huge government bureaucracy. Previously it had been banned, but it was left to the states. It was not, you know, it was not a perfect system. But he really militarizes and industrializes it. Go, go back a sec. Why is, does the legislation get passed in 1914? It's fascinating. If you think about... Because, because I mean, Coke used to have Coke. Yeah. And uh, even in the 1914 legislation, if uh, learning from my notes about your book, if it's correct, there's even a loophole there where doctors can still prescribe for addicts. So there doesn't seem to same the same deep ideological hysteria about drugs that comes later. It's the beginning of the ideological hysteria. It's very interesting. If you had said to me four years ago, why were drugs banned? I would have guessed that people gave then the reasons that we would give now. If you had to give us, we had to give reasons, you'd say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs. We don't want people to become addicted. That stuff barely comes up. It's founded in a racial hysteria, a huge panic, uh, a belief that Chinese Americans and African Americans are taking drugs, forgetting their place and attacking white people. It's a proxy way of trying to put African Americans and Chinese Americans back in their place. A good example is in San Francisco, there was a Chinatown and they wanted to clear it out. So they tried to literally forcibly relocate the Chinese Americans to an area reserved for pig farming, right? And the California Supreme Court says, you can't do that, they're American citizens, you can't do that. So then they immediately decide, well, we'll crack down on their opium because that's like a symbol that we can attack. And they go and they just raid Chinatown and arrest them all for that reason instead. So you see that again with African-Americans. I mean, some of the stuff is shocking when you read it. You know, doctors saying in these official statements about why it should be banned, the cocaine N-word sure is hard to kill. The, the, this belief that African-Americans are attacking white people because they use cocaine. You can see what's happening. White Americans didn't want to think, well, maybe African-Americans are attacking us, and they were in very small numbers when you consider how badly they were treated. Because they were thinking, you didn't want to think, well, maybe African-Americans are attacking us because we're treating them appallingly, their life is terrible, we're denying them all basic opportunities. Much easier to think, oh no, it's this white powder. And if we get rid of this white powder, they'll calm down how again. How many instances were there of African-Americans using white powder and attacking somebody? I mean, well, there were, there were lots of- uh, to, to create enough for a national legislation. Sure, 
it's a hysteria in the same way that, you know, there's all sorts of hysterias that go on that have no basis. We're in the middle of a hysteria about vaccination. There's no, there's no, it's based on a false belief. Because there's lots of white people using heroin and coke in those days. Sure. Well, it's very revealing. When Harry Anslinger finds out that Billie Holiday's a heroin addict and begins this process of stalking her that leads to her death that we can talk about if you want. He also finds out Judy Garland is a heroin addict. Billie Holiday gets stalked until her deathbed and they, you know, they're imprisoned. Judy Garland, who tells her to take slightly longer vacations and tells the studio she's going to be fine, spot the difference. You know, of course they knew that drug use went all across the United States, all ethnic groups, as it does today. It's a proxy war. It's a way of attacking African-Americans and Chinese-Americans. You know, and the Billie Holiday story, I mean, it's so heartbreaking what happens next. He, he hated, Anslinger hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to track Billie Holiday. It'd be kind of obvious. He employs this guy called Jimmy Fletcher, follows her for two years, tracks her everywhere she goes. And she was so amazing, he fell in love with her. And his whole life he felt ashamed of what he did. He busts her, she's put on trial. She said, the trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday and that's how it felt. She's sent to prison. And when she gets out, exactly what happens to addicts today, she can't do her work. You had to have a cabaret performer's license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. So she couldn't sing. Her friend Yolanda Bavan said to me, what is the cruelest thing you can do to a person? It's to take away the thing they love. You know, so she can't sing, she sinks back into addiction. When she's in her early 40s, she collapses in New York. She's taken to hospital. The first hospital won't even take her because she's an addict. Second hospital takes her. She says to one of her friends, she's convinced the narcotics agents aren't finished with her. She says, they're gonna kill me in there. Don't let them, they're gonna kill me. They, uh, she's taken in, she's diagnosed with liver cancer. They arrest her on her deathbed. They handcuff her to her deathbed. I interviewed the last remaining person who, who'd been in that room. Um, they take away all her things. They don't let her friends in to see her. She goes into withdrawal. One of her friends manages to get a prescribed methadone. She begins to recover. 10 days later, they cut off the methadone. She dies. But here's the amazing thing about Billie Holiday, and this really helped me to think about the addicts in my life as well. Billie Holiday always found somewhere to sing that song. She would find anywhere they'd have her, and she sang Strange Fruit, and she defied the people doing this to her. Southern trees there's strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging and to know that addicts can be heroes, and to know that, you know, while we're talking all over the world, there are people listening to Billie Holiday and feeling stronger because of what she did, I think tells us so much. There's the, this story tells us about why the drug war began in race. It tells us about how the drug war works today. It's still as racist. It tells us about what we do to addicts today. I went to, you know, a prison in Arizona where women are made to go out on chain gangs wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict and dig graves. You know, those women will get out, they'll never be able to work. Is there anyone watching this who thinks they're more likely to get clean because we do that to them? And so it tells us about the reality now, but also it tells us about the way out. The courage and resistance of Billie Holiday at a time when very few people were standing up is really something that should inspire us as we, we figure out how to end this thing. Go back to this 1914, because mm. uh, I learned from your book that there, I think if I have it correctly, there's this loophole that allowed doctors to prescribe addicts heroin. Yeah, so and that stays true in, Cal in Nevada and 
I should say it's a, it, it becomes illegal in Nevada, and the Chinese no, gangs take use of it. What okay, happened? make sense yeah. of this, because yeah. here's the underlying question, and you'll tell the story. How much is organized crime behind the war on drugs? Start with the California story. So as you say, when they write the law, very specifically, they say, look, this doesn't apply to addicts. Addicts can go to the doctor and get whatever drug they're addicted to. So this carries on. Doctors just prescribe heroin to anyone who needs it, right, in most places. And it's shut down state by state by Anslinger. It's slightly by his predecessor, but it's really stepped up by, by Anslinger. And uh, a fascinating story that, as far as I can tell, has been untold since then, that I uncovered. In, uh, in California, the local Chinese drug gangs were really pissed off because in Nevada, the drug dealers had to, they'd shut this loophole, and so the drug dealers had to go to the criminals to buy their drugs, right? But in California, they kept the heroin clinics open because they were hugely popular. The mayor of Los Angeles stands in front of one of the heroin clinics and says, you ain't shutting this, this is good for our city. And so the local, local Chinese drug gangs bribe the federal narcotics agents to introduce the drug war, to crack down, to shut the clinics. The only people who have ever won from the drug war are criminal gangs. If you ban something popular, it doesn't go away. It gets transferred to armed criminal gangs with all sorts of horrors that happen, as you saw with alcohol prohibition. You know, Milton Friedman, not a man I'd normally quote approvingly, said, you know, uh, Al Capone was the product of alcohol prohibition, the Crips and the Bloods are the product of drug prohibition. And he's absolutely right. And again, at the end of the drug war, when, when I speak to people who, who led the Colorado legalization campaign, there were people frightened in California to point out that legalization will bankrupt the cartels because they thought the cartels would come and attack them for saying that. At the birth of the drug war and at the end of the drug war, one group wins overall, and it's the criminals. And I went to nor northern Mexico, in, uh, the deadliest city in the world, Ciudad Juarez, and saw that dynamic in, you know, on steroids. There's got to be more to why they do this in 1914. How widespread was drug abuse, uh, drug addiction at this time? Was it really, was it becoming what alcoholism had been? No, it's very interesting. There are studies that were done um, that showed that the vast majority of drug users had normal jobs, you know, uh, certainly they were, you know, if you were a drug addict, it was like being an alcoholic, your life was depleted. They were no more likely to be poor than the general population. Um, it's very interesting, the best way to understand what happens, that transition, is through the story of this doctor, Henry Smith Williams, who's a doctor in California, who treats addicts when drugs were legal, and then treats them as it's being criminalized and as the crackdown begins. And he really sees what happens, you know? You have people who were somewhat depleted, but went to the local store and bought their drugs. Suddenly, two crime waves are summoned into existence. You have armed criminal gangs take over the trade, with all the violence that comes from that, because if something is illegal, you can't go to the police to protect your property rights. You have to be terrifying, you have to fight for it. I learned this from my friend, the transsexual crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn. You have to fight over it, you have to um, kill over it. So it's partly that. In order to justify all that risk you're taking, you can massively jack up the price. The price of the drugs goes up a thousand percent after they're criminalized. So suddenly you have these addicts who previously could afford their drug, what do they start doing? The women start prostituting themselves, the men start uh, committing property crimes. You know, there's this huge rise, and it's really important to remember, loads of people saw how destructive this was at the start of the drug war. This didn't come in easily, it's massively disputed. They have to round up and arrest 20,000 doctors who insist on continuing to prescribe, even though they see it's a disaster. Organized crime, it gets, if I understand correctly, is gets into the heroin trade in the early 20th century. Uh, certainly, well, no, only when it's banned. I mean, because when it's legal. So when does Rothstein get in and start? So Ra Arnold Rothstein from alcohol to yeah. heroin. So 
Arnold Rothstein was the most famous gangster of the 1920s. He's probably most famous from being remembered as the guy who rigs the 1919 World Series. Um, fascinating guy, he basically invents modern drug dealing and he's, he's a very smart guy and he sees a market opportunity. And he obviously he mostly does alcohol, but he sees that alcohol prohibition ain't gonna last that long. And he immediately capitalizes on the drug market and immediately moves into it and um, is a huge beneficiary of it, you know? Yeah, he, 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 one of the really important things to understand, and this, you see this both in drug dealing then and drug dealing now, and I saw this in, you know, the, as I say, the transsexual crack dealer I became friends with in Brownsville, Brooklyn, whose story I tell in the book, and the story of the young hitman for the Zetas cartel in Mexico, whose story I tell in the book. I didn't check, but I'm guessing there's a liquor store pretty near where we are, right? We're in Baltimore. Uh, if you and I go into that liquor store and we try to steal the beer or the vodka, they're gonna call the cops and the cops will come and take us away, right? That liquor store doesn't need to be violent. They don't need to be threatening, they don't need to intimidate anyone, right? If we go to the local weed dealer or the local Coke dealer and we try to steal their weed or their Coke, they can't call the cops. The, the cops will come and arrest them, right? So they have to be terrified. Occasionally in Baltimore, it's the cops doing the stealing. But That's go, definitely but, true. But, but go ahead. But th so if you're a dealer, as Chino taught me, you have to be frightening. You, you don't want to be having a fight every day. So the ideal is to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one would even think of taking you on. The sociologist Philippe Bourgeois calls it, prohibition creates a culture of terror. This is nothing to do with drugs. If you banned milk, right, and people still wanted milk, exactly the same dynamic would happen to the sale of milk in the marketplace, right? That is just how it works. It's a really fascinating study I quote in the book by a guy called Professor Paul Goldstein, who looked at all the murders that were classified as drug-related murders in New York City in, I believe, 1986. The exact figures are in the book, but if I remember rightly, I think 2% of them were instances where someone had committed a property crime to get their drugs, and it had gone wrong and they'd killed someone. About 7% were where someone had used drugs and lost it, and all the rest were nothing to do with drugs. They were prohibition-related crimes. They were criminal gangs killing each other or people getting caught in the crossfire. This is a horrendous, I tell the story of a girl called Tiffany Smith in the book here in Baltimore. Three-year-old girl playing on her porch who shot, it killed in shootouts between, between dealers. None of this has to happen, right? Where are the violent alcohol dealers? The drinks aisle at Walmart doesn't go and blow up the local liquor store. They don't go and shoot the local liquor store guy in the face. Why? They did under alcohol prohibition because it's a legal market. All that, Milton Friedman, sorry to keep quoting the Nobel Prize winning economist who was horrendously right wing, but he was very good on this, pointed out there are 10,000 additional murders every year as a result of, of drug prohibition, right? That's 10,000 people, that's three 9-11s that we can prevent by, by, by transferring this away from armed criminal gangs into a legal regulated market as they've done in other countries, and I can talk about it if you like. Harry Anslinger, who's the head of the, the narcotics division at the uh, FBI, and as you call, sort of the guy that really drives the war on drugs, uh, you, you say that he begins because he has to justify his own existence, but he also seems to become a, quite a true believer. Oh uh, yeah, no, I think those two things overlap. It's very interesting, if you look at marijuana, he had said that marijuana is not very harmful, he's not that bothered by it. And then suddenly, you know, because the heroin and cocaine market isn't that big, as you said earlier, you can't justify a huge department for this small, relatively small trade. He suddenly announces that cannabis is worse than heroin. He says that if Frankenstein's monster bumped into cannabis on the stairs, Frankenstein's monster would drop dead of fright, right? He Does starts, he have direct connection to these crazy public service announcements they used to have? They're him, that's him. The Reefer Madness, that movie, that's, that's Harry Anslinger, that's all his stuff. It's very interesting how he does it. He latches onto this case. There's a boy called Victor Lacato, who's I think he was in his early 20s in Florida, 
who hacked his family to death with an axe. And Harry Anslinger announces, this boy used marijuana, and this is what will happen if he used marijuana. And it becomes a massive, huge news story. The kind of Fox News of its day, Hearst newspapers, massive story. It's the main reason why marijuana is banned, this hysteria. Years later, as I explained in the book, someone goes back and checks the psychiatric files for this boy. There's not even any evidence he used marijuana. His family had congenital insanity. They'd been told to institute